so basically we're looking today at Acts 25. So uh, if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along with that. And we'll just read through the text and then we'll pray and then we'll get into the uh, passage itself. Now when Festus had come up to the province, after three days he went from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favour against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man, to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favour, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am offender, or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if, but if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, No one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has the opportunity to answer himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together, without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. 
But when I found that he committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. And Father, we thank you for your word. And we know, uh, Father, that your word is living and powerful, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, just tonight we pray, as we look into your word, we ask that you would speak into our hearts those things you want us to learn. Uh, Please speak to us now, we pray, and give us hearts willing to listen and respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, to be honest, when I was asked to speak on this passage, I was a little bit um, clueless at first, but um, uh, as as time went on, I I feel that there's some things that the Lord really wanted to bring out. And uh, I want to just begin talking about something which seems slightly off track, but I think it is uh, relevant to this passage. One of the things we notice as we're going through um, the book of Acts is that God repeatedly makes certain very specific promises to Paul at certain junctures in his ministry. You remember initially, um, shortly after Paul's road to Damascus experience, that there was an overarching promise given for Paul's life at that time. Um, It was given to Paul, but it was also given very directly to Ananias. And uh, you remember what God said to Ananias. He said... Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So that promise or that call was really the foundational call that God made upon Paul's life. And you can notice a couple of things about it. It states clearly the overall objective for Paul's life, which was to bear witness for the name of Christ among the Gentiles. And also in that promise, it alludes to the great personal cost that it would have for Paul. And the Lord says there, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. This kind of idea of having an initial call or a commission on your life is paralleled many times um, in the scriptures uh, with many of the people that God uses. So we can think about Moses. Um, God says, come now therefore and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You remember Isaiah, he says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And to Jeremiah, he said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So many great men and women of God had this call, really quite a dramatic call that God places upon their life, which was very specific. It's not just confined to the pages of the scriptures, but we see it in great men of God since. I just want to read you a few words. Uh, I was talking this morning, I was trying to get through the biography of Hudson Taylor. And you remember him, he was a great pioneering missionary to China. Um, But I think this is great about that initial call of God upon Hudson Taylor's life. Just going to read you a few words. It says, and then alone upon his knees, a great purpose arose within him. If only God would work on his behalf, would break the power of sin and save him spirit, soul and body, 
for time and for eternity, he would renounce all earthly prospects and be utterly at his disposal. He would go anywhere, do anything, suffer whatever his cause might demand, and be wholly given to his will and service. This was the cry of his heart, nothing held back, if only God would deliver and keep him from falling. Of what transpired further, we know no more, save for a few lines written when occasion required it the following year. Never shall I forget, he wrote, the feeling that came over me then. Words can never describe it. I felt I was in the presence of God, the Almighty. I felt as though I wished to withdraw my promise, but could not. Something seemed to say, your prayer is answered, your conditions are accepted. And from that time, the conviction never left me that I was called to China. So you may wonder a little bit where I'm going with this, but part of it is that call of God, that distinctive call that God makes upon, upon men through the Old Testament. Well, we're going back to Paul again. And just thinking about that initial commissioning that God gave to Ananias um, about Paul, there's three things I think we notice from that at that point. First of all, we notice that the commission was unique to Paul's life. God says, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine. It was something very specific to Paul's life. Secondly, the nature of what Paul was called to do was specific rather than just general. It was, it was a very specific thing. I've called you to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And thirdly, and importantly, uh, Paul's commission was associated with a clear expectation of suffering. So God says, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So there's these three elements, uh, uniqueness, a specific task, and an expectation of suffering. And invariably, they are elements of the call that God makes upon each of our lives. Now, following this initial promise that God makes Paul initially, the Lord goes on throughout the book of Acts to make further specific promises to Paul. So, for example, in Acts 18 and verse 9, he says, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. In Acts 22, verse 21, he says, Depart, for I will send you from here to the Gentiles. And finally, and most relevantly to what we're looking at tonight, God, God says to Paul in Acts 23 and verse 11, he says, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem so you must also bear witness at Rome. So make a mental note of that. God specifically says to Paul there, um, you're going to testify for me, you're going to be a witness for me at Rome. So this is a bit of a lengthy sort of introduction really. Um, but I think it talks, what I'm trying to say is about the centrality of a sense of calling really to Paul's ministry that kind of underpinned and undergirded everything that he did. Um, we see as we go through chapter 25 that everything Paul does here is undergirded by this unshakable conviction that not only has God called him to bear Christ's name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel, but he specifically told Paul, you're going to do it for me in Rome itself. So what I want to do really is just go in to look a little bit more into the passage itself, go through the passage and we can just uh, reflect on that idea of calling. I want to come back to that at the end of our talk here and just talk a little bit more about that. So we see in verse 1, 
we remember last week uh, we had uh, Paul was kind of left in confinement under Felix. Felix was a procrastinator. Felix was a governor who was pretty much hated uh, by the Jewish people. He was very brutal towards the Jews. They constantly wrote letters um, uh, complaining about him to, uh, to the Roman authorities. Um, so he was really quite hated uh, man. But um, Festus arrives on the scene. The estimate of history is that he was really a better man than Felix. And Festus wanted to learn from the mistakes of uh, his predecessor. Basically, he'd really put the backs up of, uh, of the Jews. And so he immediately went to Jerusalem to try and ingratiate himself with the Jews. That's what we see in verse 1. He went up to, from Caesarea to Jerusalem. The Jews, you can see in verse 2, they lost no time, basically, in, um, in uh, uh, kind of coming against Paul with accusations. And they petitioned him and uh, asked him this favour. They entreated, uh, they entreated uh, uh, Festus that he would uh, send Paul to Jerusalem. And they had this crafty plan in their minds that they were going to murder him, basically, on the way. We see in verse 4 um, that um, Festus refuses to acquiesce to their request. We don't know why Festus didn't agree for that. Um, we don't think he knew, probably, of their murderous intentions. But for some reason, Festus didn't agree um, to uh, Paul going uh, to Jerusalem. Maybe there was a reason for that. Uh, maybe he kind of didn't want the Jews getting too full of themselves and, you know, he wanted to retain a bit of his power. Uh, maybe it was just a bit of hassle to organise Paul to be transferred over to uh, Jerusalem. But whatever the case, and I think this is a really important point, whatever the case, God sovereignly uses Festus's decision to bring about his purposes. Um, of having Paul bear witness for him in uh, Rome. Now, without wanting to get too technical, this is really a prime example of what we would refer to, I may be wrong in defining this, but what I would refer to as something in the Bible called compatibilism. Okay, so compatibilism can loosely be defined as God using choices which we seem to make freely, freely made human choices, Um, And he uses those choices, or he orchestrates them, in a way to accomplish his sovereign purposes. So we can see lots of examples of this in the scriptures. So we can see the classic example people give of this, if you read about theology. uh, The classic example people give of this is the story of Joseph. So you remember Joseph's brothers, they were pretty bad bunch really, weren't they? And they sold him to the Midianite traders. But God actually uses this wicked act. He uses it to bring great blessing for Joseph, his family, and the entire people of Israel. So uh, it says in Genesis, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And this idea of compatibilism is supremely seen in the crucifixion of Christ. On the one hand, the Bible says it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. The Bible says that God wanted, you know, to bruise Jesus. He wanted to, to, to kill Christ, in a sense, for, for our sake, for our behalf. But also, Acts 4, verse 27 to 28, indicates that the conspiring of Herod, Pilate, and the Jews were all involved in this. It says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So my point is that we see in this situation that Festus' decision 
not to send Paul where he was going to be murdered. That was obviously all part of God's plan. And I think that this idea of compatibilism, if you want to use that word, sounds a bit dry, but if you want to use that word, it's a great encouragement to us. It's a great encouragement to us as believers. Have you ever felt at any point in your life um, that you've made, you've kind of taken the wrong fork in the road? I don't know, maybe with a relationship or with your job or with something else. And you've kind of thought, oh, you know, I've kind of missed out on God's will, you know. My life is pretty much finished now, you know. (laughs) But, you know, as believers, we can be assured that God is weaving together all of the circumstances of our life for our highest good, not necessarily our immediate good, but our highest good and his glory. And that's what Romans 8 verse 28 says, doesn't it? We know that God works all things together for us, for his glory, who are the called. So I just think that's really worth taking note, that idea there that we see of compatibilism. It's great encouragement for us, for believers, um, that God is sovereign, that he's working his purposes out. Um, Let's just move on. Let's look at verse 5. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. So we learn a lot about Festus here. I think what we learn about Festus, probably compared with Felix, is that Festus is really a man who's got quite a lot of integrity. He wants to hear the facts. He wants to give Paul a fair trial to see if there's anything in him that that is worthy of of, of condemnation. You know, I was just thinking about this, just off, off, off off the case, but you know, I don't know whether you're anything like me, but I tend to make a lot of snap judgments on people sometimes. <laughs> and so, not always, I'm not always like that, don't worry. I haven't made snap judgment on you. But, but it's very easy, isn't it, to make snap judgments on people and just think, they're not godly, you know, they're a bad person, they've done this wrong thing. And so what we do is we play judge, jury and executioner with people before we've heard the facts. Um, and that's a sad indictment against us, isn't it? And actually that's a crime against love. Because 1 Corinthians 13, it says that love believes all things. And so love would always prefer to give people the benefit of the doubt. Love would always prefer to do that. You know, we don't, in our flesh, we don't always want to do that, do we? We want to kind of write people off. Um, but we see that um, actually Festus didn't want to do that um, with Paul. He wanted to hear the facts. Um, so I think we can learn from that, even just from, uh, from that. So verse 6, what we see happening is we see uh, Festus is sitting down on his judgment seat, his grand judgment seat. It was really a symbolic gesture. It underscored the seriousness of the case and also the authority which he had. He'd been delegated that authority. Um, But I wonder what was going through Paul's mind, if you can imagine, as he was sitting there in front of Festus. I expect he was reminded of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus stood in front of Pilate and Jesus said... You could have no authority at all against it had been given, unless it had been given to you from above. So, for all of the solemnity of the occasion, Paul could bear in mind that fact that all human authority is ultimately um, derived from God. And you know, in verse 7, I think this is very powerful in verse 7, uh, when he come, the Jews who had come, came down from Jerusalem, stood about, and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which he could not prove. So Paul was really surrounded by his accusers. He had a sea of accusations, false, groundless accusations. And you know, doesn't that remind you of, do you remember David in the Old Testament? Do you remember David and Absalom when he was, uh, when he was surrounded by enemies on every side? And David said, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. 
Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. You know, many times in life we can feel surrounded by accusation. We can feel as though we're lost in the sea of accusation, particularly now. um, Because even in a natural sense, people more and more kind of blame Christians, don't they, for misdemeanors. We're seen in increasingly negative uh, public light. But, you know, this is a bit off track, but kind of... I think sometimes for us, especially in the West, in our experience as Christians... Sometimes the way in which we feel that accusation is coming against us, and it's not strictly what this text is saying, to be honest, but I think it is just a point. But I think sometimes we feel that we feel accused, don't we, inwardly. We have inward accusation. Have you ever come to a point when you just feel very inwardly accused? Um, and you feel as though foes are rising up against you? Um, and you feel as though, you know, those voices are kind of saying, you know, you're just, you're just too, you're too selfish to be a Christian. You're not loving enough. You're not in harmony with God. You're a hypocrite. You know, you can't really do that. And you become overwhelmed. You can become in your mind almost tormented by, by condemnation. And that really reminds us, doesn't it? These ceaseless accusations, these relentless accusations. And we know that the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So he loves to bring accusations against us. And so even if not in the physical we're experiencing accusations, in the spiritual we can experience accusations. And that can be something which is satanically inspired. And often that comes, you know, I don't want to allegorize this passage, but often that comes, like Paul, as we're stepping out. We're stepping out into the ministry. We're pursuing that call on our lives, and then that accusation has come, the op- op- opposition comes. And, you know, how do we overcome that? Just, just as a side point, how do we overcome that? How, we can get crippled by that kind of thing, can't we? But how do we overcome that? Well, you know, <clears throat> in Revelation 12 and verse 11, it talks about there being a great war in heaven. It talks about there being a war between that ancient serpent, the, the, the enemy, Satan himself. Um, and there is this cosmic battle in heaven. And it talks about how Satan was overcome. It says that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. So when, in a sense, internally, we're experiencing uh, accusation, how do we overcome that? We overcome it by the blood of the Lamb. You know, we sometimes think, how much is in the blood of Jesus? I know this is off the point, but how much is in the blood of Jesus? You know, we sing that song that sin's curse has lost its, its grip on me. So the grip of sin on our lives is broken forever by the blood of Jesus. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, that most precious of things. We know that sin cannot be remitted without the blood of Jesus, but we have the blood of Jesus. So we can plead the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus which is our defense against all of Satan's accusations. You know, I just want to say to you tonight that, you know, I know this is kind of a point from the passage, but, you know, there are seasons when we feel accused, but I just want to encourage your confidence, you know, in the blood of Jesus. Um, because, you know, the blood of Jesus is our defence against those accusations of the enemy. So we can plead the blood of Jesus. And by the word their testimony, and not loving their lives to the death. But as we look at the passage again, we notice that all of the charges that are brought against Paul, they're all completely groundless. And Paul defends himself point by point. So first of all, Paul talks about the law. Uh, If I can actually see what I'm looking at. He he talks about the law. He says, 
that he hasn't offended against the law. And so he talks about this. The first thing he brings up, he says, we haven't offended against the law. Well, you know what? In Romans 3, in verse 31, it says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So Paul wasn't coming against the law. That was one of the things they specifically said, Paul's undermining the law. He wasn't, you know, he, doesn't, he was establishing the law. That's what he said in Romans. He was establishing the law. He hadn't offended against the temple. He was... He was uh, accused of offending against the temple. That was the second thing. But actually, Paul preached Jesus, who was the fulfillment of all that the temple ceremony had pointed to. So he hadn't preached against the temple. And thirdly, he hadn't offended against Caesar or his government in any way. Because we know that later on in Romans 13, he urged believers to be fully subject to the governing authorities. So Paul was able to kind of slam those accusations one by one, saying, I haven't done this, I haven't done this, I haven't done that. And he could do that in good conscience. So what we see happening in verse 9 <clears throat> is we see uh, Festus suggesting, he was kind of wanting to placate the Jews. He suggested that the trial should be held um, at Jerusalem again. Um, but Paul suddenly, unexpectedly, such, uh, shockingly, he kind of says, I appeal to Caesar. Caesar. <clears throat> what I think is really interesting to, to consider here is why does Paul appeal to Caesar? What was his reasoning in appealing to Caesar at this point in time? Well, there was kind of quite a common sense reason for that. On the one hand, the Jews were constantly trying to kill him. And so rather than being delivered into their hands, um, he preferred to be in the hands of Nero. Now, to us, with the hindsight of history, that doesn't sound like a great idea, seeing that we know that Nero used Christians as kind of candlesticks and was quite brutal and vicious. Um, but actually, Nero, in the first five years or so of his rule, he was actually considered a pretty good and a fair and a just ruler. He was surrounded by wise counsellors, um, and people would often go from far, far and wide to Nero. So Paul just probably thought, I would prefer to go to... Uh, I prefer to... Um, I prefer to uh, uh, go to him rather than the Jews that I know are out to kill me. But there's a deeper reason. <clears throat> there's a deeper reason. And the deeper reason has to do with what we talked about initially, this calling. It's unclear whether Paul decided at that moment in time <clears throat> that um, he just made a decision then, I appealed to Caesar, you know, it suddenly came upon him. Or whether that was something he'd been pondering for a long time beforehand. But either way, <clears throat> Paul was confident in the call of God in his life. And that's why I'm talking so much about the promises of God. Paul had this rock-solid conviction that God had called him to go to Rome. And that's what we see Paul acting on here. He was acting on that rock-solid conviction, I appeal to Caesar, because he knew that that was the way that God's purposes were going to be fulfilled in his life. So this boldness he had in his, in his calling, it gave him courage in the face of his accusers. And it also gave him that assurance that God was orchestrating everything in his life. That's why he did that. So let's look at verse 12. Uh, well, going through um, verse 12, I mean, Festus really didn't have any, any uh, kind of uh, choice but to grant Paul's request, because we know Paul was a Roman citizen. Uh, we've talked a lot about that, how Paul often uses, uh, often uses his citizenship. He had the right to have a fair trial. He had the right to appeal to Caesar. Um, and it's only one of several instances we've talked about already where Paul uses his Roman citizenship in hazardous and life-threatening situations. Uh, so in Acts 25 and, uh, 22 and verse 25, when Paul is threatened with scourging, uh, he says, Is it lawful for you to, to, to uh, scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? 
Why did Paul do that? Sometimes I think, you know, why did Paul appeal to his rights? Sometimes it can be hard to get this in our minds because we think as Christians, well, surely I'm meant to be laying down my rights and not kind of standing on my rights. Surely that's the whole point. And we sing songs about that, don't we? Like, I surrender all, I yield all my rights. So how there's kind of seems to be, there can always be a tension there, can't there, as to, as to why did Paul kind of insist on his own privilege? Well, I think, I can't fully explain that, but I think there's a couple of points that are worth bearing in mind. I think first is our view of suffering, which is that suffering in and of itself, there's no merit in suffering in and of itself. Suffering for the cause of Christ, obviously, is admirable, but we're not necessary to seek out suffering. And if we've got, you know, if we've got, uh, you know, sort of privileges, we can use them. And the second point is this is that Paul knew that he could have greater fruit for gospel ministry if he used those privileges that he had. Um, you know, we've all got certain privileges, I guess, just being in this country, being members of the UK. Uh, we may have privileges in our profession. Um, and we shouldn't feel ashamed about using them. We shouldn't feel ashamed about using them. Uh, that's what we learned from Paul. Um, Jesus said we can be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. So there are times when it's wise to use, um, to use those, those kind of rights that we have. So looking at verse, uh, we're going to move on and look at Agrippa. Agrippa comes, um, him and Festus are kind of buddies, uh, and he'd, uh, he'd come to pay a visit to Festus. He was a part of the Herod dynasty. Um, it was a dynasty we know that was famed for its moral depravity um, and its brutal suppression. I mean, it's not really a great family to have, is it, really? His great-grandfather tried to murder Jesus as a baby. I mean, that's not good, is it? His grandfather had John the Baptist beheaded, um, and his father martyred James the Apostle. So, you know, it's not really a good, a good family line to come from. And then we've got Bernice, and she was an interesting woman as well. Um, she... She would have made a good storyline, I think, for EastEnders with her kind of antics, to be quite honest. Um, <clears throat> she was Agrippa's sister. So, let's get this right. She was Agrippa's sister. She'd previously been married to Agrippa's uncle, Herod King of Chalcis, before he died. And then we know that she had a, this kind of incestuous relationship with Agrippa. And then she was later married to someone called Polymon or Pokemon, as I call him, King of Cilicia. Uh, and before divorcing him and returning to her incestuous, incestuous relationship with Agrippa. So if you can work out that, I don't know really, but it clearly wasn't a very good situation. But it does remind us that, you know, we're, we're inclined, aren't we, to think our day is awful, our day, there's so much moral degradation and kind of bewail that. But we know this, we know human nature hasn't changed. And we know, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, that there's nothing new under the sun. So, um, worth remembering. But basically, we go through verses 14 to 21, and we see, Paul, we see Festus relating Paul's story to Agrippa. Um, we don't know why he did this exactly. Um, perhaps it was just an entertaining party piece, a good story to tell uh, Agrippa. And maybe it was just that Festus was an inexperienced ruler, and he just wanted Agrippa's... Uh, kind of perspective on the situation, but he he uh, he kind of he relates this account of. Um, I'm not going to go through all that really because we kind of know most of that. I just want to pick out verse 19 in particular. Um, <clears throat> it says in verse 19, uh, you know, I had some questions against him and their own religion and about a certain Jesus who 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 had died and Paul affirmed to be alive. 
What we can learn from that is that Festus really had a very light view, didn't he, of Jesus? It, it was kind of of no consequence to him. There's this Jesus guy, and he may, have, he may be alive, he may not be alive, but, you know, it doesn't really matter. But also, we notice there's the reverse implication, there's another implication of this as well. The other implication of this is that the thrust of Paul's teaching was Jesus, A, and B, his death and his resurrection. And that tells us something very important. Because that chimes in with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. He says, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. So that was the thrust. And actually Festus had picked up on that. He'd picked up on that. The thing Paul is talking about is Jesus Christ. So the mark of authentic apostolic ministry is that it always has the death and resurrection of Jesus as its prime focus. You know, and we can easily go off off kilter. We can easily, I'm not saying it's wrong to ever teach about other things, about spiritual gifts or anything, but the prime focus, and particularly of what Paul's bringing here, the prime focus is on Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And we can learn about that. That's the authentic focus of apostolic ministry. So we see in verse 22, we see that Agrippa is also keen to hear Paul. It's another tremendous opportunity, isn't it, for the gospel. It's got the opportunity um, to hear to. Uh, 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 here, Agrippa. Again, see how that fulfills, again, Paul's initial commission. In Acts 19 and verse 15, it says that he'll bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And here he's doing that, isn't he, in front of a king, Agrippa. So, what happens in verse 23? Well, Agrippa and Bernice come in. They come in with all their pomp and authority. They look very beautifully dressed um, and important-looking. But you know what? Paul has a dignity about him. Paul has a dignity and a beauty about him, despite those chains that he has, which far exceeds theirs. Because Bernice and Agrippa are filthy on the inside. We already know about that from their lifestyle. They're filthy on the inside. And they appear beautiful in all their regalia and their finery. But actually, Paul is the one who is more beautiful. Paul is the one in this situation who has the dignity. And that's what Jesus says, doesn't he, about the Pharisees. He says... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. We can be like that as well, can't we? It's very easy to present an exterior. But you know, God looks at the heart, and God's looking at our hearts. And God was looking at Bernice and uh, Agrippa's heart. Um, and let's, let's remember not to judge people by outward appearances. Let's remember not to do that. So, verse 25, um, so clearly we see in verse 25, Festus says, when I found that he'd not committed anything deserving of death, um, you know, I decided. So we clearly see here that Festus realised um, that, that Paul was completely innocent. So much so that he wanted this preliminary hearing in front of Agrippa to actually try and get, I don't know what to send this guy, I don't know what to say to Caesar, I haven't got any information. So he has this initial, um, he has this initial kind of like a preliminary hearing with, with Agrippa to kind of gather the facts so he'll actually have something to, to write. So, in conclusion here, you know, what is this chapter really about? And I guess you could draw several things out, out of it really, we've talked about several things uh, we've talked about compatibilism, we've talked about God using human choices and bringing, uh, bringing uh, good stuff. But I think one of the things, one of the things that really strikes me about Paul is, is this sense of a sense of calling on his life. Because I think that's really key. I think it's that sense of calling that really motivated Paul and that really 
kind of fired him to go on. It's that vision that God had given him that time ago which really fired him. I mean, just answering a very simple question is, you know, do we, do we have a call? Has God called you to something specific? Is there a call of God on your life? Has God said something specifically to you at some point in the past? You know, maybe God has said that to you kind of years ago, something years ago, and you put it to the side, and it's now become a dusty memory. But has God called you for, some, for something? Do we need to stir up the gift of God that is in us? We all have, you know, we've been given uh, a purpose, a vision by God. Do we need to stir that gifting up within us? We need to stir it up. Not allow the calling that God has placed on our lives to go dormant. Because Paul was faithful to the call that God had made on his life. Are we willing, this is an important question, are we willing to accept the suffering that faithfulness to that call may entail? It's a very searching question, isn't it? But for Paul and for most of the apostles, it really cost them everything. It cost them their whole lives. Are we willing to be faithful to the call that God has placed on our lives? Can we truly say with Paul, listen to what Paul says. Paul says, The Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, nor do I count my life dear to myself. I have this call. I have this call, this call of God, and I'm going to be faithful to death. And this call motivates me in my life. This call gives me confidence in the face of accusation. This is the thing that I'm clinging on to, that God has spoken a specific word to me. And I'm not going to allow that call to to become dormant. Whatever the opposition, whatever the accusation, whether that's accusation from outside or whether that's internal accusation from the enemy, I will be faithful to this call. And notice how I'm not saying here, <clears throat> it's a call to your best life now, but it's, it's a call to bear witness to Christ. It's a call to testify to the gospel. And that's what we need in this generation. Because this generation is a generation that's dark and it's turned its back on God. And God needs men and women who will be prepared to be faithful and obedient to that call upon their lives. Which is what Paul said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And that motivated Paul, that gave him the strength here, despite his accusers, he knew what God had called them to, him to. Do you know what God's called you to? Has God called you to something specifically uh, tonight? I mean, we're not an apostle in the same way as Paul, and I know that, and I recognise that. But actually the Bible says um, that we are created for specific good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's created us for that in Christ. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved for good works. We're saved for those good works. And so I want to ask tonight, is, you know, is there a call on our lives? Is, is there a call on our lives to witness for Christ? Has that become dormant? Is there some long-forgotten dusty promises from the Lord that needs to be reclaimed tonight?